Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When people used to imagine a surveillance state, there usually tended to be a state involved, you know, the government. But as internet-connected cameras and neighborhood networking applications have rolled out, the people building the Panopticon have turned out not to be agents of the government, but everyday people trying to catch Amazon package thieves. We'll discuss Citizen, Ring, Nextdoor, and the techno-privatization of public safety. And then... We'll celebrate the legacy of Michael Morgan, the trailblazing conductor of the Oakland Symphony Orchestra, who died last week at 63 with his collaborators like Kamau Bell. That's next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Citizen app, like Nextdoor and Amazon's Ring service, has been blamed for inciting people to act like vigilantes. But Citizen, in particular, keeps pushing the boundaries of the role a private company should play in policing neighborhoods. They recently launched a private service called Protect that the company is billing as a, quote, digital bodyguard. Hit a button and you're connected with one of their Protect agents who they say can summon help. This is fraud territory. And many critics worry that the racial profiling private citizens do will surpass what we've seen from American police forces. And yet, who's really going to stop them? Here to talk with us about the frontier of these apps, we have Nicole Turner-Lee. She's the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Welcome. Thanks for having me. We have Matthew Gariglia, a policy analyst at the Frontier Foundation. Welcome, Matthew. Hi, good to be here. And we have Heather Kelly, a technology reporter for The Washington Post. Hi, thanks for having me. Heather, let's start with you. At a very basic level, how does the Citizen app work and how does this new subscription service Protect kind of fit into it? It's interesting. So they kind of feed off of each other, right? The, the basic Citizen app is, is a way of telling you everything bad happening in a certain radius around you. All the crimes, um, all the probable crimes, just things that maybe warranted a 911 call, but uh, didn't really result in anything. Some hysterical things like uh, Brawl Among Bikers at Burger King was on mine once. Um, and so it really feeds you like this new picture of your neighborhood and your city constantly 24 seven. And then the new feature is called Citizen Protect and it's, um, it's their first paid feature. You pay $20 a month and it's, it's kind of like OnStar or any security system where you press a button and you get somebody who's not officially a police officer, um, but they can you know, assess the situation and connect you to authorities. But here's the bonus, the very citizen special sauce. 
is they can also issue an alert and summon people around you to come help you. Mm -hmm. And then they can also turn on the microphone through this app, if you approve of it, to listen for sounds of distress. So it's like Alexa, but for screaming. Oh, my gosh. So how did they get these incidents? Like not a protect incident where they're, you know, saying, oh, my gosh, we've heard these screams and run over to the corner. But like, how do they get like the basic incidents that are sort of placed on this map? It's changed over time as they as they've been going. Um, They seem to have some sort of special system where they can tap in, I guess, to like the 911 system. I've talked to the CEO about this very not forthcoming about what this secret sauce is. Um, and then people can also report things. They, they hire people to go around and like live stream from incidents as well. Um, mm. So that kind of builds them up into bigger news events. Wait, so they hire, they say like, okay, we, we see there's a fire over on this freeway. Go over there and take video of it. Yeah, they've had job listings in some of their bigger cities for like people to work for them to kind of go to the scenes of crimes, um, almost like little vigilante reporters, I guess. Oh, my gosh. How do you see this? You know, like if you go to download this app in the App Store, it's listed under news. Like as a reporter yourself and a journalist, does this strike you as news? And if, if not, what's different about it? I mean, if you think about reporters, like we're trained... To, to never run with something unless it's confirmed um, that like we're this boundary between just, you know, people saying, hey, he did something terrible and like, no, no, let's research it. Let's confirm it. And Citizen just kind of does away with any boundaries. It's it's hey, I, I think this guy that just walked by looks a little suspicious is where you get to a lot of the racism problems. Um, it it just sort of feeds it directly to people without filtering it. And obviously, the worst case scenario was was recently there were some wildfires in uh, the Pacific Palisades. And the CEO thought it would be a good idea to issue a, what was it, like Mm $30,000 reward for any information. And it was the wrong person. Um, Yeah. yeah. And some of his, reportedly some of his Slack messages about that have even come out with him saying, find this word we can't say on the radio. Let's get this guy before midnight he's going down and calling, saying this guy is the devil. And it turned out it was, of course, the the wrong guy. Um, Nicole uh, Turner-Lee I want to ask you about how we should think about citizen within the kind of ecosystem of apps that do similar things. You know, the the Nextdoor app, uh, Ring from Amazon that sort of provide this layer of video surveillance on different neighborhoods as well as community connection also in a less dystopian way. Well, you know, I think it's such an interesting conversation. And listen, I'm a citizen like everybody else. And I love the fact that there's some, you know, digital guardian angel that may be able to come help me if I'm in distress. But to your question, I think we have to be really careful about these digitally gated communities where people can make the determination of who's the bad guy, which in some cases replicates who the bad guy is normally stereotyped as, which are people of color, black men, black women, people who are not necessarily from your neighborhood, because many of these apps are hyper-local, right? And they give people the opportunity to make judgments as to who should be in their community, who should not. And we've we fought very hard. I mean, we have a problem with policing in general. And now we have these apps that are essentially, you know, emboldening people to take on that cause. So I find it to be one of those cases where, you know, I always tell people technology is a two-edged sword, right? I like the fact that technology can do really cool and interesting and efficient things, but I'm also worried because the context in which it's deployed looks very much like a context that is still unequal, unfair, and has, you know, much 
discrimination that if used um, Ill, inappropriately will actually lend itself to uh, greater discrimination, systemic inequalities. Yeah. Nicole, I also can't help but think of the parallel to local television news where, you know, really like decades of sociology have shown that, you know, if you show a lot of crime on television news and you show a lot of brown and black faces associated with that crime, that it has a very direct effect on people's perception of the criminality of, of particular groups. Oh, I, I think that is such a great case. As a sociologist, I have to remind people, we as sociologists have been doing this for a very long time before the technology was actually birthed. And there were several studies that said, particularly in Chicago, right, where we would show the faces of black men and women who had committed crimes. And then all of a sudden people felt, you know, much more um, protective of their neighborhoods, calling the cops on basically anybody who was not part of that community. And as a sociologist, if I can go there, you know, we're also dealing with a history where we have very close communities when it comes to particular demographics. And so in my opinion, and look, I'm one of those consumers. I'm not going to sit here and say, I don't like, you know, using the ring on my doorbell as my doorbell, because I want to know who's coming to my door. And I want to see the local, you know, rabbit that's hit the backyard of my house. But we have to be careful that without guardrails, that we have the potential to sort of bring into the citizens' hands the same type of biases that we're all baked with that can have detrimental consequence on the Amazon driver that may be dropping off a package or the person who may be knocking on your door because they're trying to fix your roof. We cannot have these types of presumptions around particular populations come into play simply because we live in a society which is already scarred by inequality and racism and discrimination. Yeah. Matthew Gariglia from Electronic Frontier Foundation. I think a worry I have in this is that Citizen has a real incentive to keep this app exciting and engaging, people coming back to the map, which is not actually the same thing as providing an accurate view of the safety of your neighborhood. Um, do we have any sense of how they try to balance that responsibility or, or how do you see it just from a, a, in a more abstract way? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we know from a lot of these companies that they very explicitly say that that fear is their marketing, um, that the more you are afraid, the more you think your your date, your neighborhood is unsafe, the more you're going to use the, the app, the more you're going to doom scroll through it, the more you're going to want to buy cameras and put them on your door. So th- there is a real incentive here to make it seem like your neighborhood is more unsafe than it is, because that keeps you using that app and that keeps you buying their products. Um, and this is what the apps do. If you're if your phone is going to buzz on your desk every time somebody within six miles, you know, is is holding a screwdriver or, you know, is holding a dark wallet in their hand that is mistaken for a weapon, um, then you're going to feel even more afraid. So a lot of times these apps seem to backfire and make people more afraid than they were before they used them. Yeah. Do you is there any version of this kind of app that you think would would or should have a place in our society? You know, I mean, these apps did not invent community forums. I mean, communities should have a place where they can talk about issues, where they can plan block parties, where they can, you know, talk about public safety in a responsible way. Um, and, you know, one of the, the apps I've been thinking about in relationship to Citizen and, and Nextdoor is something like Waze, the the navigation app, where, you know, you can crowdsource information. You, you get to a obstacle on the road or a pothole or an accident or something on the shoulder of the highway 
and other drivers have have informed you that that obstacle is coming. That seems to be a more responsible way of using this technology that isn't so much uh, fueling the fire of of paranoia, of of racial discrimination and bias and of fear. You know, Waze, though, on the other hand, still doesn't provide, you know, sort of democratic control or sort of safeguards, right? Uh, no, I mean, as far as I know, most of these apps don't have people on the ground teams verifying. Yeah. Nicole Turnerly, is it possible to imagine a, a less problematic citizen? <laughs> I don't know about that. And if I can, just real quickly on the Waze argument while we were just actually talking about it, there have also been research that says that Waze is not also representative of a lot of communities, right? Uh, there have been instances that we've actually read about where Waze creates its own biases. Just want to put that out there, yeah. where it's actually having you avoid certain neighborhoods because people who use Waze, you know, tend to not want to go through certain neighborhoods when they're navigating. But with that being the case, I mean, the ideal citizen, I think, you know, Part of the problem with technology is we don't have an ideal citizen and we create these products as if we do. Mm. And I think it's important for us to think about, like, what are our flaws that we have as a society? I do a lot of work at Brookings on algorithmic bias. And one of the premises that I make is that we all come with our own big values, assumptions around the world that, you know, say much about what we believe in and how we stereotype and surveil people and what decisions we make about people. And the same thing happens when we look at applications which embolden against citizens to sort of take into their own control who should be in and who should be out. They're sort of like digitally gated communities. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to be careful in the absence of having, you know, and I think all of the companies at this point have experienced some type of a mishap that they now have community standards set forth. But I'm a next door user and I've seen plenty of people where it starts out saying, hey, lock your doors because somebody is rummaging through cars. And then you'll see a grainy image of a person who may not be necessarily a white person. And the next thing you know, there are all these comments about people who are saying, hey, this is happening to me or our neighborhood is changing. And so things like that we have to start worrying about. We're talking about the new frontier of public safety apps with Nicole Turner-Lee, director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. And we'll be back with more after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new frontier of, quote, public safety apps with Heather Kelly, technology reporter with The Washington Post. Nicole Turner-Lee, who's the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. And Matthew Gariglia, policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And we really do want to hear from you in this segment. If you've tried Citizen and used the new protector feature or not, We'd love to hear that experience. Like, why, why did you download it? What do you use it for? And if you haven't tried Citizen, how about these other apps like Ring or, you know, if you have an Amazon Ring uh, or Nextdoor? What do you like about it? What do you dislike about it? What caused you to download it and begin to use it? And what would make you stop using it? 
Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Heather Kelly, uh, I wanted to ask you about the relationship between these citizen surveillance apps and the actual police and whether or not they have links or how they share data or video or, or those kinds of things. Yeah, sure. So I think the most kind of famous example here is going to be Ring, uh, the Ring cameras, which is um, owned by Amazon. And they are kind of notorious for early on having a lot of partnerships or trying to create partnerships with local police departments. Uh, It was one of the first times we saw a company going after this market so boldly. What they did is they included a way for police to kind of encourage people in the neighborhood to to get on ring. And then if there was a crime, they would have a way to sort of do a blast email or notification and ask for that footage. Um, They kind of recently updated this, I know, thanks to EFF, thanks, Matthew, um, that now they're going to do a notification um, just through the app. So it might reach fewer people, there might be more transparency. Um, So we'll really see how that works out. And then it's interesting, Citizen has a bit more of a complicated relationship with law enforcement. Um, I tried calling the police departments for every city uh, that they were in at the time. And they, they, they're, they're sort of like wary partners, I feel like. There's no official partnerships. Um, they're friendly. And the police aren't really that interested in, in talking about the citizen app too much, I'm finding hmm. so far. Hmm. Kimberly writes, my neighborhood of West Menlo Park is absolutely more unsafe. We've had more break-ins in the last five years than in the 31 years I have been here. I need all the security help I can get. Nicole uh, Turner-Lee, earlier we were talking about society in general, and it does feel that when people have the sense that public safety is breaking down or that society has become more unsafe they will turn to these private solutions, whether in the old days it would have been yeah, a gated community or private security. Are there things that we know that make people feel more safe that don't necessarily involve using these sort of private security forces? Well, you know, it's such an interesting question, right? Because back in the days, we used to have things like Neighborhood Watch, right? We had, um, I grew up in New York. We had the Guardian Angels. <laughs> we used to sit on the subway um, back when actually Giuliani was mayor. Um, and we had, you know, people who actually just believed in keeping in touch with their neighbors and keeping an eye out on their house. You know, this was before technology. Uh, the very famous author, Robert Putnam, wrote a book around the time when we became much more industrialized called Bowling Alone where we found ourselves really more individualized when it came to our life livelihood. And I think technology sort of created an opportunity for us to get back together and create these collective consciences, right? We've got social media, which brings people together with with same interests or affinity groups. We now have these um, citizen surveillance tools, which allows us to cleave when it comes to our neighborhood and and our protection and our safety. And now with uh, the Citizen App Protect uh, app, we're able to actually get an on-call guardian angel when we feel that we're under distress. In my opinion, you know, it is hard these days with technology as the new normal to actually do anything offline. And when we see those stories, you know, a good Samaritan steps in and helps break up a fight or someone sees someone breaking in your house and calls the police, that's actually more rare, right, than it was normal before technology. 
And so I think one of the things that I try to tell people is that you have to just keep balancing the technological intervention and innovation with what we used to do in the past. And, you know, some of the things that we used to do in the past were not that bad when we actually took an eye out for each other. Mm -hmm. But we cannot find ourselves sort of wrapped in the algorithm of the technology because part of the problem of why we find some of these problems, and I'll just end here, is is partly because people don't know really what the technology does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're kind of using it because it's the new shiny object, the new app, but they're not really clear what the implications are beyond you know, their basic use. And I think that's where we have to have just a better uh, training and digital literacy around these things. And companies need to do their part too, to ensure that people are contextualizing these products and not creating more overreach. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me in the Citizen app is it tends to report um, a gunfire, which I'm assuming they're drawing either from 911 data or like shot, <laughs> shot spotter, which has, you know, these microphones up around cities to listen for quote unquote gunfire. And I, I, that, that one always struck me as a very complex one because it's decontextualized to just say like, oh, there's it just seems like there's gunfire going on all around you, you know. Um, and I'm just not sure that's always the case or if it's car backfires or other kinds of that's things. That's right. That's right. I see that all the time in next door. Shots fired. Did anybody hear that? You know, and I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, that's right by my street. What are you talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like somebody just sent out a firecracker or somebody's car just, you know, backfired. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I want to bring in Chloe from San Jose. Yes, hi, hi everyone. Uh, hi. So yeah, I'm a I'm a next door user, and I use it mostly, honestly, to be to sell stuff and buy stuff, use stuff. Um, but I also I'm also curious, and um, and sometimes I look at comments and stuff. And what I really dislike about next door is when people get really angry and mad at other people. And I think you wouldn't treat them this way if you were in person. So just to give you an example, at the beginning of the COVID, the whole COVID situation, when we didn't have, you know, so much information, I remember people getting really angry at uh, neighbors asking, you know, do you think it's safe if I bring my kids to a playground? And people would be like, yeah, they, they would treat them like crap, basically. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is, you know, not the way you want to treat people. And we didn't have that much information at that time. So that's that's what I the part I don't really like. Yeah, you know, Matthew uh, Garigli, I want to ask you these apps. Like, and let's let's focus on Nextdoor in in this case. Do we know if they actually work to increase community cohesion? And Heather Kelly, I may come to you on this too, in case you've reported on this. Just do we know that, like, we know that people talk on them, we know that people use them, we know that there are businesses being built on top of them. But do we know actually if they work to build the community? Yeah, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I haven't seen any any data on on community building, but I mean, if you look in the comments of Nextdoor and Citizen, they they are often quite divisive. It, it does often fall prey to the larger uh, problems we have on the internet right now of of extreme polarization, and and when those conversations have to do with you know um, people who who people believe are being suspect or. Uh, crime and safety, often it, it takes a, a quite a racist hinge and, you know, it gets pretty extreme in those comments. Yeah. Uh, 
commenter agrees with you here too. Joan writes, I stopped reading Next Door years ago for exactly the reason that it's being discussed. It seemed every day I found at least one post, if not more, about black men walking through my relatively white neighborhood of Rockridge in Oakland. I mean, has no one ever heard of a black man just walking down the street with no ulterior motive, especially in a majority minority city? Heather Kelly, I wanted to come to you on the same um, question that I just asked Matthew about, which is, what we know about how these apps actually work to increase community cohesion um, or, or public safety. It was interesting. So in March of 2020, I did a story about how Nextdoor very, very briefly was like a really nice place to be. Like people were going out of the way to be nice to neighbors. Um, they'd been locked down a couple of weeks. They were offering to get groceries and help senior citizens. And then like, as I was reporting the story, it took a turn and it was turning into this place for mask shaming or, you know, people, there's kids outside without masks or they're too close to each other. Um, and so it, it very quickly pivoted to like people being judgmental from their windows again, which is of course its specialty. Um, and you, it's, it's so hard because you're neighbors, but I feel like I don't actually know a lot of the people that, that consistently post to my neighborhood next door. Um, they're not the ones that I talk to every day that I see going up and down the street. Uh, it's, it's, it's your neighbors, but it's not like your community necessarily. And I think mm -hmm. that's where you get sort of these sort of hostile comments. Um, people don't look you in the eye when they say them and you are going to sort of lose some filters and some um, etiquette. Yeah. I, I, we also have an email list on our block and then there's next door and you can just see even between those two things, how different the modes of interaction are. Uh, you know, the email list is like, Succulent cuttings out on the corner, you know, um, and next door is usually not. Uh, a listener tweets, I use Citizen to understand where crime is happening around me in the wild streets of San Francisco. Going out for a walk, first check to see where the most recent knife-wielding suspect was so I can walk the opposite direction. I want to bring in um, Brendan from West Oakland, who has also used the Citizen app. Welcome, Brendan. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of relate my experience with the citizen app um i have a lot of feelings about it so i'll try to try to be brief but um yeah so i i live in west oakland obviously um crime has been like a bit on the rise here and a housemate of mine had, had this app i decided to try it out just to see kind of what it felt like and it really it ended up being one of those things where like like once you start looking for something like you will see it more um mm -hmm. and you know, I'm like seeing like, oh, like gunshots here, someone robbed here. And like eventually it kind of culminated in um, like actually seeing uh, in real time, like hearing gunshots and then seeing a car crash into another car at an intersection and like men running out of the car. And then, you know, my app blowing up with all these notifications. Mm. Uh, and I was like, you know, geez, this is like really intense. And then the day before I, I deleted the app, um, I had this experience of like, I, I drove home with my girlfriend and got out of the car and then like this car drove by us. And like in the back of my head, I was like, is this guy going to like come out of his car and shoot us? And that was just like such a messed up thought to have that mm -hmm. I was like not used to feeling um, that I was like, okay, we can't. <laughs> we can't be doing this. Um, so I, I deleted the app and, um, like ultimately I think what it comes down to for me is that like these, like these kinds of apps are, are sort of like using our fear to sort of like kind of suck us further into the like app ecosystem and sort of like divulging more and more 
of our like personal information and our whereabouts and, and your like, money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And our money. And you know, it's, it's kind of just not the world that I want to live in. And like, I understand that like there are scary things around us, but like, you know, the human mind is only, <laughs> is only capable of like experiencing so much, um, you know, fear. And mm-hmm. th- there is like a certain like irrational, like irrationality in like going about your life and, and living it. And, you know, like we get on the highway every day and that's kind of insane too. Yeah. Um, and some, sometimes you just can't think about like, you know, everything that could go wrong at any yeah. given moment. Um, Thank so, you. Yeah. Brent, Brendan from, yeah, no, no, no. I appreciate it. And I think that a lot of people do download these apps to have that ambient awareness of sort of what's going on around me. And the real question is, is the information that's in the app an accurate picture of what's going on around you? Or is it actually distorting what you see um, all around? Um, I want to ask, well, actually, let's go to one more call. Let's go to Lee in San Jose. Hey, how you doing? Uh, Thanks for having me on here. I wanted to make a couple quick points is that uh, I'm a former founder of a app that's very similar to some of these other kind of uh, safety-related apps in the past, but we'd shut that down about a year and a half ago uh, for a couple of reasons. And and I do want to make this up. We crowdsource data from whether it's from news or from social media, things like the next doors, or just people randomly posting directly to the app. And we started this with the intent that I have a special needs son that's at about the age that wants to walk around and such. So I wanted to understand what's the safety around my neighborhood if I let him walk independently. So we founded this app and and built it out with that positive feature in mind to, to have safety for people. Is there a sexual predator that moved in your neighborhood? How violent? What's the gun violence rating? Mm-hmm. So we pulled all this data in there to give us an understanding, but it wasn't with the intent to strike fear in people so that we can get more of their data. It was an altruistic manner of let's provide a sense of comfort but we actually ended up shutting it down, not for funding reasons, but there was a lot of uproar and a lot of even our close friends around us were saying, there's so much fear in there. I don't want to see constant negativity mm. on, hey, there's another car accident, another fire. So I just wanted to comment because I've heard that in a number of different callers and various people that mm-hmm. these apps are there to to instill fear in people because fear sells. I mean, that's not necessarily why we founded the company, but the byproduct of that was there was too much fear. And, it, you know, us as, as uh, developers were, were just a little bit put back that even our close friends were not even wanting to use the app because they're like, would they want more positive information? You know, there's already enough negativity in regular news. They didn't want another fear app out there, so to speak. So it just was a little stain in the eye, but I wanted to make that comment out there. Thank you for having me. No, I, I appreciate that, John. And I think you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Nicole Turner-Lee, you know, the intent of these apps is sort of one thing, right? And I think it's it's obviously important that people try to make good things. But then there's also the effect. And how, how do you think about those two things, particularly someone who studies algorithmic bias in which people aren't trying to create biased algorithms, although sometimes it happens? Yeah, no, I mean, and I actually want to relate it back to this last caller. I mean, I think when we looked at Neighborhood Watch or community groups that were putting together their own portals or I'm dating myself every block of village when uh, the first internet portals came out, you know, people put together email exchanges and other ways to keep in contact and phone trees. That was different because I think people were actually reporting factual information. 
But new technology is more affective, right? We see, like you mentioned earlier about, we see this on TV, you know, an eight-year-old just recently was shot in Washington, D.C. And we have an effect. It has an effect on us as an emotional consequence if we have an eight-year-old child. The difference with these technologies, it sort of gets us at the front end of it and the back end, right? Where the data we're feeding them, it's coming from this incestuous desire for us to be heard. A lot of this anonymization, it feeds off of our polarization. Who do we want to hear this information? And then we have this issue of tapping into this amplified fear. So I do believe that they do embolden this fear, not necessarily fear of crime, but fear of society in general and fear of certain people in society. And then it sort of taps into our ability to be these local vigilantes and to make the case for doing something right. Yeah. And I think that's the difference in this new technology. Um, I've been around since, you know, the uh, the technology of my day was the cassette player. <laughs> and now the technology <laughs> today is like cloud music, right? And when we look at these evolutions of technology, they just feed off of our emotional intelligence in ways that I think was already mentioned. It sort of feeds off of our polarization or our lack of understanding of how these really go into the deep crevices of our mind and our fears in ways that we never imagined. Mm -hmm. And so I think just going forward, for me, who studies algorithmic bias and technological innovation, it's about citizens having an awareness that this is happening to them. Yeah. Um, and you can look at misinformation and disinformation campaigns that people are affected by, and it's the same thing. These apps are built to do one thing, but they morph into these other functions and they pick up these other emotional sensors that make them something else. Yeah. And I think that's where we're having this conversation. It's a great conversation because these are often driven by private sector applications and not necessarily by government. I mean, what would this look like if government formed it? It'd probably have a different conversation, right? <laughs> but it's like, it's not. It's private companies who are actually harnessing these things. We've been talking about public safety apps with Nicole Turner-Lee, director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, Heather Kelly, a technology reporter at The Washington Post, and Matthew Gariglia, a policy analyst with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Leave you with one comment. Laura tweets, I downloaded Citizen to combat my fear of wildfire in the Oakland Hills, and due to the app's early reports of a large house fire that helped neighbors avoid a certain block, I ended up deleting it after a sleepless night following a false report of gunshots at my friend's address. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.